there's a way though that I think people need to just see that this is just one more thing that you work with in your life. It's something you navigate. It'd be the same thing as if you only had one arm. You would work with that. You wouldn't need to be stigmatized if you have one arm. It's the same thing with if you have a mental illness. It's a part of your life and it's just something that you work with. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and creative guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager, and I love to hear from you, my listeners. My website, ZestfulAging.com, makes it easy for you to leave comments or suggestions. I need to know what you want to hear more about. I really value value your feedback. And there's also a place on the website where you can purchase my guests' books and works and some of my favorite things to help you age zestfully, like my favorite Nording walking poles. Our music is provided by Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, is out in January. You can find out more about Judy at judybanker.com. Well, I've got my Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, as always, so let's begin. I have a really fascinating guest for you today. Uh, her name is Chelsea Clammer, and she's the author of the award-winning essay collection, Circadian, which looks at the different ways that trauma cycles through our lives. Her first book, Body Home, was about the concept of finding home in our bodies, and she teaches creative writing classes online with WOW, Women on Writing. She's also an avid knitter and a dog lover, so you know there's a lot of connection there. And she actually knits while she writes and edits. Her next collection of essays, Human Heartbeat Detected, will be published by Red Hen Press in 2022. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm really delighted. Uh, there's so much for us to talk about. You know, I was I was thinking about how you described your work um, as describing trauma cycling through our lives. Can you can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, in my writing, I do personal essays, um, and I also do, they're called lyric essays. They're kind of like poetic, creative essays with weird structures. And I was looking at the different ways that trauma circles through our lives, thinking about how, you know, like in the stages of grief, we go through grief and it circles through us, and we can go from acceptance to denial to anger to bargaining, all of that. And with trauma, I feel like it's the same way. I've had different moments in my life where... I went through something really traumatic or like my dad died or I went through a big bender of drinking and finally got sober. And even in sobriety, there have been little circles of trauma that just come and it kind of creates the people that we are today going through all these different cycles. So it's it sounds like, like, like a spiral almost. You're describing some kind of trauma. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Okay. And I think we have the power to have it be like not a downward spiral because it can definitely go in that way. But it's a way that we can kind of recognize that, you know, bad things going to circle in and out of our lives constantly. And I think it can be something that we do to keep the circle from going downward and just have it be a part of who we are. So what are the kinds of things that you've learned to do to 
to kind of manage the cycle because you're very forthright. You're very honest. Your writing is quite raw about some of the trauma that you've experienced in your life. People that you know and care about committing suicide, you know, your own struggle with mental health issues, um, eating disorders. What are the kinds of things that you do to kind of manage the trauma so that you can do your work? Well, it was actually writing that I think initially saved me from hurting myself. I mean, I was in a very dark space. I was drinking. I was an alcoholic. I wasn't sober yet. I was self-harming and cutting my arms like every day. Um, And I was also in a really deep bout of bulimia, and I wasn't getting out of the cycle. And finally, I went to a psych ward. It was like the fifth one I'd been in, and they happened to have a sober unit wing with them. And so I got sober in a psych ward. And I replaced, when I came out of the psych ward, I replaced it with, replaced the drinking with writing. And I just threw myself into something creative. And for all the moments that I felt like I was going to drink, I just started writing. And from that, a few Mm -hmm. years later, the book Body Home is what came from all that writing. Um, But the writing really saved me. It gave me something to do. It gave me a way to process all the trauma that I'd been through, you know, whether it was my dad dying or I had a sexual assault experience from drinking, I shoved all that down. And then when I stopped drinking, it had to come up in some way. And so I used writing and a lot of therapy to help me get through those hard moments. Um, And now I continue to write. And that is kind of, it's my therapy. It's also what I do for a living. It's my career. And then I have to have another sort of creative thing going on. And that is where the knitting comes in. (laughs) The knitting will help me to just keep going forward to doing something. If I'm having a hard moment, I can just sit there and knit. And my roommate will be like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm just thinking and knitting. And she's like, oh, okay. And she'll move on. Mm. So, you know, I feel like that's the creative part. And we want to point out, you are not just knitting scarves. I have seen your (laughs) knitting. And it is, do you want to describe a little bit about the lace yoke that you just put on your sweater? (laughs) What's funny is I didn't even know what a yoke is until somebody was like, that's a lace yoke. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So it's like a (laughs) collar. I just thought I'd call it the collar. I've, I've been knitting for a total of, I think, two years and a couple months now. And I just got oh. sucked into it because I, I was going through a falling out, a really terrible falling out with a friendship. Um, and that, that friend is the one who taught me how to knit. And so to kind of get through those moments of just devastation of not having this friend in my life anymore, I just knit hats. And I kept knitting. And I didn't stop knitting. Um, and so now I have, oh man, I'm looking at my closet now. I have like five sweaters that I've made and tank tops. I made a dress. Um, the lace yoke that I did on this new sweater I finished yesterday. Um, it's just really pretty. It ha- kind of has like a V design on it with some yarn overs and then it's three quarter sleeves and it's all mm-hmm. in, for you knitters out there, it's all in fingering weight. So it's really skinny yarn and it, it yeah. took about two weeks. And but for those of you who aren't knitters, this is advanced knitting. This is not, you know, just sitting there and, and, and making like the endless scarf. This is really <laughs> precise. The yarn is, is like thread and it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, ch- this is, this is serious knitting. This is advanced knitting. So, uh, you must yeah. be very talented be t- doing this for, uh, uh, a couple years. You know, yeah. I am, uh, aware as psychotherapist when people do need a higher level of care and they go into the hospital, there's a lot of knitters in in hospitals uh, with uh, psychiatric Yeah, care. and there's actually, that's something I wanted to do. The very first psych ward I went into, I was 19 years old, 
and it was Shoal Creek here in Austin. Um, I had attempted suicide, and thank God that didn't work. And I ended up in a psych ward. And I realized I was in there for a week. I got out. I attempted suicide again. They put me back in the same psych ward, and I was there for another week. And I got... I don't think I got, like, fixed or anything in the psych ward, but it was a space the first time that I felt like I was somewhere that I was going to be okay. I got to the point where I'm like, I can't take care of myself anymore. And so the psych ward was not a scary thing for me. It was that place that I then returned to whenever I felt like I wasn't doing okay. And eventually that's where I got sober. Um, But what I wanted to do was volunteer there and bring knitting and teach the other people in the psych ward how to knit because it is one of the most therapeutic things that I've ever done. You know, the writing and the knitting. And even now, to this day, I actually, I write as I knit. So I'll sit there, I'll, I write by hand. So I'll be writing something by hand, and I'll think about it, and I'll sit, and I'll knit, and I'll think about what I'm doing, and then I'll go back and have something in my head, and I'll go write. And I go back and forth between the two, and that's how I continue to progress onward through any sort of downward spiral that I have. I write and knit myself out of it. And so what is it about writing and knitting that keeps the spiral from from dipping down? Can you explain? Because, you know, I do things about knitting on the show, but not everyone that's listening <laughs> is a knitter. Yeah. I appreciate that. So sometimes it's hard to explain. Many people, I'm sure you've heard this is, oh, I never would have the patience. Yeah. Or when they find out how much you spend in yarn, <laughs> they're, they're appalled and say, I could buy like 10 sweaters at Target for that. Yeah. Um, what is it about knitting and writing that keeps you healthy? I think it's, a lot of it is with keeping my hands busy. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm necessarily an anxious person, but I do feel like I always have to be doing something. Always. It's just like any, any moment that I have, I can't just sit there and stare at a wall. For me, that's what it is when you're depressed. You can't do anything. And so having something to constantly feel like I'm doing is what keeps me feeling, I guess you could say even active in a way, but it helps to just keep you feeling like something in your life is in motion and you're not just sitting there being depressed. So And progressing, right? Because yeah. even on your skinny little yarn, your little fingering yarn, um, you can see it growing, yeah. right? So you're always making progress mm-hmm. and you're always sort of reaching towards some kind of goal. Like even yeah. on your sweater, there will be a time when you bind off and it'll be over <laughs> and you're finished. Exactly. And it's the same thing with writing, too. Like for, for me, I don't think there's anything about wasted writing. Every word that you write is you practicing writing. And so, I mean, I've, I wrote an entire memoir. It was like 250 pages, and it never got published. It got accepted by a tiny publisher, and then I decided I didn't want to publish it because it was just me being bratty and, you know, talking smack about all my ex-girlfriends and boyfriends that I had. So I didn't think that it really needed to go out there, but... It wasn't a wasted word at all, because every, every stitch that you make, every word that you write, is you creating some sort of movement, and you're progressing through some sort of thought in your head, and so I feel like I first started with writing, and I would just sit and write because I didn't know what else to do with myself, and so all of that writing, maybe 10% of it ended up in a book, but you know I had to do all that writing to get to the book that I created, and that's true for every single word that I write, and so I think that sort of philosophy translated really well for me into knitting as well that it's not one stitch wasted you are it's one stitch at a time going towards something at the end and there will be something there so even mm-hmm. if you're sitting there and you're depressed and you can't do anything 
or I've had days where I'm just like, oh, I didn't do anything today. I'm just so terrible. I just sat there. I was sad. And my boyfriend will be like, you knit an entire sweater. That's doing something. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm guessing you get, because your work is gorgeous, people say, you made that? Yes. Yeah. People will, they definitely, that's definitely said a couple times. There was, I actually recently, um, I was in Florida for three months for the Jack Kerouac Project. They're a great organization that gives a writer, one writer, three months in a house that the writer Jack Kerouac used to live in. And this is in Orlando, Florida, and I applied for it, and I got accepted. So I spent three months this past September through the end of November in the Jack Kerouac house, and I was writing, and I wrote half a book, and I was knitting a lot. And one of the neighbors came by, and she saw one of the tank tops I was knitting, and she's like, I think you probably knit better than you write. <laughs> oh. like, she was like, that's a compliment. It's good. I mean, I'm sure you're a good writer because you're here, but you're a really oh. good knitter, too. I was like, I oh, think I'll take gosh. that as a compliment, but okay. How, how, so. how interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my she was goodness. A fun one. Do you ever think about this uh, idea that your life with all of the challenges has given you such rich material to write about and if you hadn't had the life that you've had although I know very painful and difficult you might be writing you might be at a loss yeah no that's I that's absolutely true I mean my my dad and I had a really terrible relationship we didn't really connect much and I was the angry teenager that put all the anger on him um and when I was 20 one, I believe it was in 2004, he died um, from alcohol toxicity. And so that gave me so much that I could write about. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying a parent needs to die for you to be a writer, but it allowed me something to focus on that I could write both my anger about, that I could write, you know, all of the struggles that I had. And it also sadly helped because a lot of people worry about writing about their family members because you might piss somebody off or you you know Mm. you might think that's not your story to tell well he was dead so I could write whatever Mm. I wanted to Mm. and I had struggles with like you know my other half of my family saying I shouldn't write about that my mom has always been a really strong supporter of my writing now she has read every word that I've ever written um even the stuff that's unpublished she's my first and she reads everything um, mm-hmm. So she has kind of gotten to help me think through some of what I have written about or what I was going to publish. But I think that with all the stuff that I've gone through, it's definitely given me a lot of material for sure. And I don't think, though, that you have to be some trauma survivor to be a writer. Um, I think that the, the main thing with writing is just finding the interesting moments in your life, whether they're just really weird coincidences or they're very traumatic things and finding a way to approach them in sort of a a different perspective. So Mm. the trauma definitely gives me so much to write about. And I've had moments in my life where I'm like, man, everything's going well. What do I have to write about now? Mm. (laughs) I've written about my dad. I've written about the cutting and the eating disorder and the bipolar disorder. Man, I need something traumatic to happen. I've had those thoughts, you know. (laughs) That's so interesting. I mean, um, what it makes me think about, though, is is perhaps, is there a way in which your writing kind of keeps you in that mindset of trauma survivor? Well, I think that's a really good question, because there have been moments where I've been both writing, and it will get me into a dark place, and I'm like, I shouldn't write about this right now. But then there have also been moments where I've approached a moment in my past life 
where it was a terrible moment, and I've written about it 80 million times in 80 million ways, but if I keep coming back to it, I find a different perspective on how to write about that one incident. And it does, it both, like, can get you either in a bad space, or it can get you in a space where you're like, oh my god, I've been through a lot. And I am now, you know, in a spot where I can look back and think about this event in a way that's more of a type of art for me. And it gives me a sense of control, almost, where... If I'm able to put words to it and the words become my art, it, it helps me to see what has happened in a different light. And it does, I feel like every word empowers me when I'm writing from that sort of a perspective. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself a mental health advocate or in some way is your writing, is the goal also to address the stigma of mental illness? Definitely. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm necessarily an active advocate. Um, I mean, I'm not a part of, like, NAMI or any organizations, but I do, I do think that writing about mental illness is a way to be like, look, this is all over the place, and it's not anything that you need to be afraid of. I mean, it can be some scary stuff going on, and I've had those scary moments, and there's a way, though, that I think people need to just see that this is just one more thing that you work with in your life. It's something you navigate. It'd be the same thing as if you only had one arm. You would work with that. You wouldn't need to be stigmatized if you have one arm. It's the same thing with if you have a mental illness. It's a part of your life, and it's just something that you work with. And I think as you get healthier um, and you're able to be an advocate and you're able to kind of step out into a public life and talk about your mental illness, that's really important because it helps people see that those who are struggling, there is sort of an end light of sorts where you can get to a healthy space and you can manage your mental illness really well. Um, and also to show that, you know, you might not see somebody and think that they have bipolar disorder. I mean, personally, I have, I think, six different diagnoses of what I have. Um, mm-hmm. And my, my boyfriend, um, when we first started dating, he was just like, are you sure you have bipolar disorder? Because you don't seem like you have bipolar disorder. And I'm like, I'm on really good meds and I manage mm-hmm. my mental health. You know, and I do all these things on a daily basis to make sure that you wouldn't think that I have bipolar disorder, basically. like What do you do on a daily basis to keep your mental health um, sort of sturdy uh, in addition to meds? Um, I also make sure that I do the, the writing and the knitting. I mean, that's like a daily thing that helps my mental health. Um, mm-hmm. When I was getting into a depression, I got a dog. And, you know, it was a little puppy, and she pisses me off so much. But she's also a cute little puppy, and she, you know, she helped me to take the focus off of me, because if you're in a depression, or you're really getting down on yourself, having something else to come in and lick your face and make you mad or make you laugh is, it's helpful. So I got a dog that I take care of. Um, I also make sure that I somewhat eat right. I mean, having, I know I don't eat enough. I have a history, a long history of eating disorder, but what I do eat, I make sure that it's at least protein-filled and healthy, and, you know, I also, I also used to be a very, very big runner. I used to do 50-mile ultra-marathon races, um, and I think that was getting a little too unhealthy, so I scaled it back, and now I try to run at least a few times every week. Um, so just the, the real basic stuff of just taking care of your body and your mind, and then the medication, and also noticing if you're in a space where there's just too much chaos going on around you, it's okay to exit out of that space and it's okay Mm -hmm. to take some time for yourself to make sure you're in a good space before you can re-enter into whatever chaos is happening in your life so you've gotten much more skilled um over the years and knowing what you have to do to stay healthy yes definitely Mm. 
Hey, Zestful Agers. Last year, I attended the International Federation on Aging's Global Conference in Toronto, and they've announced the 15th Global Conference on Aging for Niagara Falls, Ontario, from November 1st through 3rd, 2020. Zestful Aging Podcast is a proud partner for this conference, and I encourage you to all consider attending. The conference features prominent experts presenting and discussing critical issues within the field of aging. So head on over to ifa2020.org to learn more, and I hope to see you in Niagara Falls in November. So I want to talk about your online course. And as far as I know, it is absolutely unique. Your Wow Women on Writing. Could Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about the Anonymous program? Yeah, I I created a class. um, It's called Face Your Fears, and it's an anonymous writing class. It's online, so you pick a pen name. I'm the only person who knows who you are. You're the only person, you know, who knows me. Um, and so the whole class is anonymous, and the point of the class is to write about trauma. So you can have a safe space to write about trauma, and you will get feedback on the actual writing, not on the events. There's no, well, you should have done this or done that. No, it's, hey, this sentence could be fixed, or why don't you write more about this aspect? Um, and I did that because I had an experience where I had a writing mentor who, when I turned in a piece of work to her, all of her feedback was about the situation and how I should have stopped this from happening and this was my fault and why didn't I oh. say this? And I mean, oh it goodness. it crushed me. It had nothing to do with the craft of the piece. And so from that, like, it took me a long time to recover from that, both spiritually and as a writer. Um, I realized, like, there needs to be these safe spaces where you know that you can go there because writing really saved me and I... Luckily and thankfully, I had a mother who was willing to read all of my really traumatic work. Um, and knowing that she was going to respond with positivity and good comments and say, hey, I don't remember it happening like this, or hey, what if you wrote more about this? But nothing judgmental at all. And so I created that space in this online writing course, and it's a six-week course. Um, I do one every January and one every August. And so I, I created the Face Your Fears class, and it's just, it's amazing, and people take it, I've had people take it multiple times, <laughs> they create different screen names, um, and the two classes are different readings, so that you can take two different classes um, and have different material each time. So that's How the, did you come uh, up with this idea? It just seemed, it seems so uh, helpful and relevant and also very unique. Yeah, I was actually already teaching classes with WOW Women on Writing, they're amazing. You should check out their website. Um, I think it's womenonwriting.com. I should know that by now. Um, but they have so many different classes and so many different genres. And I was teaching one that was kind of like a book group sort of class. We were actually reading Mario Hornbacher's Madness and reading about you know mental illness and how do you write about mental illness and how do you write about being crazy from a sane space or how do you write in a way that makes you sound crazy while being sane so you can really get, you know, your sort of voice across the page. And as we were doing that, I, I had this experience of the woman totally like berating me instead of looking at what I had written. And I'm like, man, there needs to be a safe space that I can just give a piece of writing to somebody and get that critique back in terms of writing and not on the actual event. So I, I approached the um, editor-in-chief, Angela McIntosh, about it, and she said that that would be a fabulous idea. 
So I just created it and I teach it on my website. Um, it's really simple to take. So. so, you know, we were talking about like you feeling well and sometimes writing about traumatic events and having to be careful because then it might put you back in that space. I wonder what it's like for you now as an award-winning writer, stable, knowing what you need to do to for your own mental health, and then you're hearing or you're reading so much trauma. Some of it, uh, I, I imagine, would be some people's first attempt at really writing their experience. How do you negotiate that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, a couple of ways, because, um, yeah, I teach... I teach this class about trauma, and then I teach a class about grief, and I teach a couple of classes about mental illness, um, and so I also then teach classes about humor, and I do writing that has nothing to do with trauma. Because thank as goodness, a, yes, as a teacher, I'll be like, I need to teach the humor class because when I've taught the trauma class, I've had twelve students, and they're turning in an essay to me every single week for six weeks. So that's you know twelve essays about different traumatic experience every week for six weeks. That's what I read through. Um, plus all the reading that we do for the class. And so, yeah, it gets, it can get really heavy for me. And really, I think this is where the, the freelance editor in me comes out is that I'm able to hold these people's stories in a way that almost I think I would imagine a therapist would, that you hold it and you look at it and you help that person consider and reflect and think through the different aspects of it. I just do it more in a creative sort of let's look at your sentences and commas sort of way. Or let's look at what might be missing from this story. And I'm able to funnel it into my passion, which is editing and writing. And so it helps mm-hmm. to, to look at it more as a piece of creativity that we're trying to work with together rather than something that we necessarily have to solve on the content level. We can solve it on this like creative sort of how do we compose this sort of writing? Mm-hmm. What do we do with it? So for me, it turns itself into more of a type of art of something that I get to... Mm-hmm help them work through rather than something that I take on myself. And, you know, I feel for every single one of my students, but I also see them first as writers because that's what they're coming to me for. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Have you ever had the situation where you felt like you had to intervene or recommend therapy? They, or I Thankfully, I have not yet had a situation where that has happened. Um, usually, though, I do kind of turn somewhat therapist, um, and cause, you know, with the trauma class, I'm the only one that they know and they have constant contact with me. Um, and so I've had a couple people who have then hired me, um, once the class was over to edit for them. And I've had one that wanted it to be like the person that she could talk to every week about her issues. And for her, I was like, I'm not a therapist. You should go to your therapist. But if you want to mm-hmm. talk about your writing every week, yeah. I can definitely do that. But I, I thank God I have not had the opportunity where I, or I haven't had the situation where I thought that I definitely needed to intervene in some sort. So you've had to be really clear with your students as well as yourself that this is about the craft yeah. and I mean, and not sort of get sucked into the the, trauma uh, the, the feeling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I and see. I think that because you're to see my my comments are all I always keep them related to the actual craft and think like okay, well, here's a question of why you use this word or where you could go further with this thought or you start a thought here and you never finish it. So I think because my questions are all on craft, it helps to guide them into like 
that that's what they're focusing on here. And it, it gives a different sort of space for you to think about trauma if you're looking at it from more of a creative puzzle that needs to be solved sort of way rather than how to deal with it all at once. I see. I see. Yeah, we call that a container nice. in psychotherapy <laughs> lingo, nice. providing a container. I am the container provider then, I guess. <laughs> You can add that to your website, (laughs) container provider. Excellent. So I know we have people listening who are trauma survivors because statistics uh, tell us that. Um, And more and more, uh, we're certainly seeing people who have had different traumatic events. And some might even say living in today's world is traumatic in itself. Um, how would you advise people who want to start writing or even have done journals before? How would you advise people to start writing about their trauma? Is there kind of a guideline? Yeah. Um, well, if, it depends on, on your financial resources. Um, I know, take, I think taking the classes online is definitely key i think because Mm -hmm. it gives you some guidance if you're just getting started with this it gives you a safe space to write about my classes the trauma one is like 200 bucks which actually i don't think is all that bad but i personally also do sliding scale i've had some people who pay me 25 dollars a week for eight Mm -hmm. weeks to make up for whatever the 200 was because i i never want money to be something that gets between a writer and her work i just hate that thought so me personally i do sliding scale um but Something that can be a lot cheaper is, you know, starting a writing group, which can be good. Um, it can be hard, too, to open yourself up to different people. Or, and this is really how I started out writing, is I just kind of taught myself. And there was a book called Writing as a Way of Healing by Louise de Salvo, I believe it is. Um, and she talks about how you can use writing as a way to work through trauma and grief. And there's, I know that there's tons of writing guides out there. And so what I... I did was looked at all those guides and I just went through them and did the prompts and did a lot of writing and eventually moved on from reading books about how to write about trauma to reading books of how to write more better, if you want to say it that way, Um, how to write better um, and looked at more of the craft books and took what I had written and all just the writing that I got out to get the trauma out into writing and then how to craft that into something. So I kind of moved through that process. But I, I think the most important thing is just write actually start mm-hmm. writing and you can journal and you have all your journals that's awesome keep going and eventually as you keep writing and maybe as you look at some of the books that are out there and I would say read other trauma narratives too to see how other people write about trauma um mm-hmm. to then just sort of as you write think of well maybe this is something I'd want to share with somebody else and you know keep that aside and work on it maybe create an essay out of it but just stay aware that what you write is something that could be a piece of art that you create later mm-hmm. on Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, yeah, I, the, the word craft really sort of resonates as you're, as you're discussing, you're just, you're, it's like sculpture, you it know, is. you're just constantly yeah. saying, what can I take away? How can I form this? Uh-huh. What perspective would yeah. I use? It's, it really is yeah. such an art. And that's something that we do in the class that I teach is we also look at, you know, what if you used a different point of view? Like, what if you said, you did this, you did this, instead of I did this, I did this, you know? Simple things like that, or even if you're talking about it in present tense or past tense, can totally mm-hmm. change a person's experience of an event. Um, and I, I talk a lot, too, about structure and how, you know, we don't, 
we don't understand or really go through trauma in any sort of linear way. Like, yes, the trauma starts here, but it doesn't necessarily end there, and there's not a point from A to B that's this straight line of going through trauma. It, like we said in the beginning, it circles and it cycles and it goes around. So what is it then to write about trauma in this sort of fragmented way? The class that I teach on on grief looks at grief and writing about it in fragments. And so we, I don't know anybody who's been like, oh, my grief story is this happened and all this then happened in a linear sort of production mm-hmm. and now I'm okay. No, you experience yeah. things, you remember trauma in like flashbacks and these different, you know, flashes of moments in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so in some of my classes, I try to get people to write in that way, write out a flash and then skip on to something else because that's how your brain remembers it. Don't try right. and create this like one sweep of a narrative. So right. yeah, that's the, what the I was path. just thinking as you were saying that my understanding is that when we're going through trauma, it's processed in a very primitive place in our brain. Yeah. So it's not that higher level of this happened, that happened, this happened, it your brain kind of uh, short circuits. Yeah. And sometimes you're like, why am I thinking about this right now? I have no idea that this is how this came up to me in trauma. And this is how it triggered something. And so when writing about it, I, I would re- suggest just getting out, just purging yourself of all of what you need to purge yourself of. And then, yes, you turn to the craft and you understand, well, these are how these flashbacks fit in together. This is sort of the overall narrative that can come from this. But it's really, like you said, with sculpting, I love that. It's shaping it and piecing it together to have something that you can share with somebody that is both poetic and beautiful and also raw in the truths that you bring to it. That is really fascinating, and I am so glad that that you are a writer, so you can process this for yourself and yeah. also share it with others who so badly need it. Yeah, I've. I mean, that's one thing. When I started writing, I don't know why I thought this, but the the main thing that I said is like, you know, people are like, "Well, what do you want your writing to do, or what is your point to writing?" And for, I don't know where this came from, but inside me, my answer has always been: if I write something. All that I want is somebody else to read it and have that inspire her to write something. Because I think it can be really hard to get other people to write about their trauma or feel safe enough to write about it. And I I feel like by sharing my story, as long as I'm helping somebody else share her story or get inspired to share her story or even start writing about it, regardless if it's published or not, then I feel like I've done my job as a writer and as a human being. You know, I've taken the terrible stuff that I've been through and have used it to help somebody else through her terrible stuff. So you're sharing the craft and the healing. Yeah. Yes. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yes. Oh, good. Uh, that might be the title <laughs> then that we'll use. So um, where can people find you, Chelsea? Um, I have a website. It's Um, And it's C-H-E-L-S-E-Y because my mm-hmm. mother wanted me to be different. Um, so <laughs> I have the E-Y, so mm-hmm. the E-A on my name. Anyway, so I have a website and all my writings on there, and you can find my books. Um, Circadian came out in 2017 by Redhead Press, so you can. I have links for it on my website, um, mm-hmm. and then they have links for it on theirs. And then Body Home came out in 2015, and then I have my next book coming out in 2022. Um, so I have to wait a few years, but that will be coming out. And I'm also <laughs> <laughs> it will be on my website when it does. It will also. Um, I have like Facebook. So be my friend on Facebook. I don't really use Twitter, but I use Instagram. And if you're on Ravelry because you're a knitter, then please friend me. I think my name is just Chelsea Clammer on Ravelry. So. 
Oh, that's great. If people don't know what Ravelry is, it's like the Facebook of knitting, and it is a total time suck and the most fun ever. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for speaking with us today about, yeah. you know, your life and your craft and so honestly, I think people are really going to appreciate that and find inspiration and also hope in uh, what you've said today. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me and having the space that these can be topics that are discussed. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.